Hello and welcome to the Game Production Podcast. I'm your host Riyad Jemeli. This is the podcast about the production and business side of game development. How do game studios decide which games to work on, how do they manage them, and how do they market them? In this second episode, I'm talking with Marek Jemak of 11-Bit Studios. 11-Bit Studios are based in Poland, and they are the creators of hugely popular and award-winning games like The War of Mine and Frostpunk. And they are also the publisher of various indie hit games, including Children of Mortar and Moonlighter. Marek is the external development director of 11-Bit, and we will be talking about the pitching process, his thoughts on mature games, and what the 11-bit DNA is. Let's get into it. Hello, Marek. Thank you for coming onto my podcast. Please introduce yourself. Who are you and what are you doing? Hi, hi. Um, thanks for having me here. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, my name is Marek, Marek Jimak. I work at um, 11-bit Studios, uh, currently in a role of um, external development director, which means I work with teams um, creating games that we as 11-bit studios publish. Um, there's a, well, I think of a wide variety of areas I'm kind of responsible for. These are um, areas uh, connected to scouting of our projects, creating, well, the, or co-creating the general vision of the types of games that we want to be publishing, um, but also all the production aspects of those games and working with the developers on a daily basis, um, as well as making sure the communication flow between our external development unit, but also our marketing business and the developers and platforms that they they work well. So that's 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 about it. <laughs> uh, excellent. Yeah, I already have a ton of questions, but let's let's start at the beginning. So, is this your first job in the games industry, or how how was your career? How did you start out? No, that's not my first job in the games industry. I started, I had a nice start. I started at the Project Red, The Witcher and the Cyberpunk Creators. I think it was back in 2006. Yes, 2006. I joined the project when they were still working on The Witcher 1 in a role of a game tester. It was a part-time job. Um, I was uh, doing while I was studying. I was studying programming, IT. The name of the major was cybernetics. Um, but so yeah, there was a bit of electronics, a bit of programming, a bit of everything. Um, and nothing really hyped me much. I always loved games. But back in those times, I never believed that like making games could be a real career for mature mm -hmm. people. Um, so it was crazy weird and lucky that i found a job at the project and yeah i was i was testing things for the witcher for half a year then i managed to uh, move to design department gameplay design department because well like by then i knew the environment and the game a bit and i knew how to script and program at least a little bit uh because because of my uh, formal training um so this allowed me to become at least partially capable of doing stuff for uh, for the game. Minor stuff, obviously, because I was a junior. Uh, but that's how things started. And then, well, uh, it went from there. I, I was in CDP for a few years, working on Witcher 1, Witcher Enhanced Edition, Witcher 2. Um, I had a small break, I think, during my career in, in CDP, which in total, I think I was there for a bit over six years, maybe seven, something like that. But there was a one-year gap I had. We left the company with two of my colleagues to form our small indie studio. It was just three of us working, like a very cliche kind of a thing, working in uh, my parents' basement, hmm. doing weird stuff or old iPhones and, and some uh, casual games trying just to really start that business. But it was it was before indie games were becoming really popular. I think it was even before, like, or maybe during Fez times and stuff, like everything. Well, at the long story short was that we weren't very successful. So after a year of that kind of experimenting, a very fun year, but um, two out of three of us, decided to travel back to, to the project and start working on um, The Witcher 3, which they were producing during that time. So I went back to CDP. Um, I decided to come back in a new role because during this indie, um, indie adventure, I started doing a little bit of art, 3D art. Um, this was always interesting for me for some reason 
or well, I know why, <laughs> uh, but I, I just gave it a chance. And uh, so once I was coming back to CDP uh, to work on Witcher 3, I joined the, um, well, they didn't really have a pure level design team. It was like a world building team, environment team. Uh, and that team was was um, responsible for partially level design, but also meshing, creating assets, yada, yada, yada. And um, it was a great experience. Like I joined that team. Um, I managed to uh, learn much more about not only building levels in our game editor, but also uh, modeling different objects in the game's world. It was really fascinating. Uh, so I kept on doing that for some content in, in The Witcher 3. And uh, once the project finished, I think I was this world builder um, guy for around two years. And once Witcher 3 project finished, uh, no, sorry, gosh, I'm mixing everything now. <laughs> that was Witcher. That was Witcher two. Uh, wow, uh, see, that's that's a long time ago. Okay, the, I guess <laughs> the long, <laughs> yeah, long story short was that I was doing a lot of things in in um, uh, CDP, and it was a long time ago. Um, so yeah, everything I said was was in uh, for the Witcher two, and then after Witcher two ended, I moved to the production department. Um, because um, I had this small passion for production as well. Um, during many years of my design and, and world building career, I was I was um, I had a role of a like a scrum master um, at CDP. Um, I was one of the persons introducing actually some agile methodologies and scrum back in the days to the teams. I liked it a lot. So after um, all the experiences we had with with The Witcher Two. I was like, hey, okay, um, maybe I'll move to production because right now my head is full of full of ideas on how we can improve pipelines and productivity and then become, you know, more happy and effective. And let's make this a heaven, right? I was very young. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I so I moved to, to the production department and I stayed there for another two years. That was during the Witcher 3 uh, time. Back then, I felt that's enough. I haven't finished the project. I think I um, did quit the job around, I don't remember, it was alpha, something around that. It wasn't an easy decision. I think I had enough. I was ready for new experiences. Um, I wasn't entirely happy where I, where I were, obviously. And there was this new, really exciting um, position uh, that I knew about at 11-Bit Studios, which back then was a very small developer. I don't know, it was maybe 20, 20 people. We work with smaller teams often as publishers, but coming from CDP, mm. which already had like 300 people or 400 people probably back then, this felt extremely... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, much smaller, yeah. Yeah, much smaller, a bit weird, but uh, very fascinating. Um and I was definitely looking for such an um, intense environmental change. Uh, and it happened. Like I, I joined 11-Bit Studios in the role of a um, senior producer for the publishing initiative that was slowly taking off. It was back then um, a little bit more than an idea. And together with, well, my back then boss and my very good friend, Pablo Feldman, um, we've been slowly building that initiative. I that all of that happened over seven years ago, uh, seven and a half years ago. I joined Living Bit Studios. That's about it. Like, uh, sorry, I know it was a bit of a um, chaotic, um, chaotic, chaotic uh, story, but it also felt chaotic at times. Um, <laughs> luckily, since those seven and a half years, I'm in a, in, in I think in the right spot, uh, building something. Um, and just moving forward in the direction that I've chosen some time ago. Um, and I'm happy with it. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's um, you've been around for quite some time and you worked like at really prestigious positions. So it takes a moment to retell the whole story. I appreciate it. So at what point was 11-Bit when you joined them? You said they were quite smaller, but you were pretty quickly uh, considering like this publishing route. Was it in relation to, I think, the first major big hit, this war of mine? Uh, was that before that or after that? 
it was before it was before it was before um this war of mine and it was before anomaly defenders i think i remember those were the two first projects that were released when i was on board already actually i was i was always focusing on the publishing side um supporting sometimes a little bit the internal development side of things i think i was as far as i remember partially responsible for the porting process of this world of mine to mobiles and to, to consoles um, but also because i joined the company i don't remember now exactly maybe half a year maybe a year before this world of mine release i um uh, was also uh, taking part in, 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 in the marketing process of the game. Well, I remember us traveling quite a lot uh, to different, well, regions and, and different events. And uh, I was one of the people often on the booth uh, pitching the game to, um, well, the random crowd, but also journalists and partners. Um, so, yeah, I was how, somehow involved. I, I can't say I'm the creator. I had my share of at least some tasks that I was doing for the project. And I, I, I sincerely loved it. It was an amazing game and it still is. And we felt that something special, but we were very humbled, but also surprised by the size of the success that it generated. Mm. It actually established us on the contemporary roadmap of, of indie studios and allowed us to move forward into creating um, Frostpunk and now, you know, um, Frostpunk 2, amazing title. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, this War of Mine was like in my reception was like a huge, huge hit. Everybody was talking about. And you already said you knew you were making something special, but was this success a, a surprise or was there already a lot of buzz and interest leading up to the release? It was a surprise. Uh, we knew we we're doing something different. That's for sure, because there weren't many games about such dramatic themes, speaking to all the players in such a mature and open way so we knew it's not going to be another another release from the segment but we weren't sure how people would react to it we were small so it wasn't really easy to get like super proper research or real um wide um journalist opinions we knew that people like it when they see it we were giving given um, positive feedback but you know what it's like with sales especially if you don't have too big of a marketing And we were self-publishing that. And uh, obviously our marketing budget was limited. It, it did surprise us, especially that it started growing organically. And it wasn't one of those games that just sold uh, uh, dozens in the first 24, 48 hours and then started fading. It was, I think, and it still is kind of the opposite. It's a very long tail. Uh, it took it time also to build up its success. Uh, but I think it's a trade of these, well, this particular type of a game and this particular type of approach, like there wasn't a very big hype that we could generate at the at start, but because the game was truly different and interesting, it was getting a lot of word of, word of mouth and a lot of random reviews and articles all over the place. Not only, not only gaming media was, um, writing and, 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 and recording things about this world of mine because it was, it was more of a, I don't want to say cultural event, but it was pretty important, I think, for, for the whole gaming industry. I, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to make this too big. Of course, we haven't been the force that redefined the whole industry. No, no, no. But I, I think we did our share in actually changing how some people see games i i would agree um i think it's it's an important game in the in the timeline of of gaming but yeah let's talk a bit about what you're doing now so you already touched a little bit on um your current uh work and um the things you do you mentioned that one of your jobs is kind of building a um portfolio of of certain types of games or thinking about what kind of types of games you want to publish as uh, 11-bit. Yeah. Can you talk about a bit more about that? Like what's kind of the DNA or the genre or what defines a 11-bit published game? Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a very interesting and good question. So thank you for that. Um, 
And the answer is, uh, intuitively, it is simple, but it's really complex, actually, to explain because um, there's no simple definition of an 11-bitish game. What we like to often say is that we really value games that are thought-provoking. Um, we use this term meaningful as well. Uh, so while these are very short and easy to um, remember phrases, they're very, very wide. And it, it's, it's, it, sometimes it doesn't work as a definition. I mean, we craft these other extra lenses that we like to look at products through these lenses. And these are... These are things such as um, responsible design, for instance. So we like games that are um, crafted for you to have fun or any other kind of valuable experience instead of hooking you up to a mechanics that's a little bit of, uh, I don't know, toxic and then just tries to uh, become addictive in some way. We want we want our the mechanics that we have in those games to actually support the worlds and the, 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 that we're building and the themes that we're trying to create. Um, there's then the meaning factor, the meaningfulness or meaning. We want our games to well be unique. That's one thing. Um, we're not the biggest fans of of just repeating the same thing over and over again. But on the other hand, we want those meanings to be valuable to people so and that's a very broad definition but we would like to be making games that are that are that provoke you to think about maybe the world maybe our society maybe our surrounding maybe just sometimes give you a bit more insight into your own feelings and what you are and where you are something like a good movie or a good book you know something that gives you a bit more than just kind of a pleasure coming from an entertainment, something that, that leaves you maybe a bit of a well, a better person. That would be, that would be well, <laughs> that's a dream. Like we would be love to be working on games that make people better. But um, even if they provoke them to think about important subjects, that's often enough for us. Uh, that's a lot to demand, obviously, but that's 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 kind of a, kind of a content that we're looking for. And then there's also obviously the the business relevance element, which is more of like a sum of all the other things. Gaming um, or game industry is an industry and we're in this business to, well, to be here, to um, be able to support our families, to grow our company, to secure budgets, to keep on investing into bigger and, 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 and better teams perhaps in the future. So obviously we have to be um, earning money for us and for the developers. That's why they they um, joined the publishing, and uh, and that's one of the reasons definitely. So this is also one of these aspects that we that we're analyzing when looking for games. Like what what, what will this sell? Uh, simply like mm. um, is this is this good? Does it have a message? Does that respect our strategy, but also respect players and the world in general? And then. Can it be justified from the market perspective? Sometimes we expect the game to be a massive hit, sometimes a bit smaller, but still it's like we wouldn't like to be focusing on games that are maybe very smart and beautiful, but may developed in a way and in a form that's not marketable like that, that, that you can't sell basically, because that would turn us a bit more into a museum. Um, <laughs> and while we value museums, um, and they're needed. It's not really our type of business, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, but that's an interesting question, right? That's the, like the, the million dollar question. How do you assess the marketability of a game or if it will be successful? So what are kind of, like, how do you research uh, that part? Uh, I guess it's pretty complex for a publisher of your size already. Uh, well, there, there is a lot of gut feeling into that, uh, I have to admit. But Well, there are elements that we looked for in the past that have worked for us. So we keep on looking for them uh, right now, currently as well. Obviously, when, when we're getting a pitch, we're trying to understand the USBs because they allow us to verify whether this game will somehow stand out from the crowd. And we, we're focused on games of that kind. Like I, I don't think we're the best ones in marketing and releasing, like I said, another 
well, not, not even a copycat, but another similar game from a segment that doesn't really have too strong of a USB, just makes everything better and, and nicer. We're not that kind of an entity. Mm. We need this creative fuel to, to fuel both our hype, internal hype, that will then uh, allow us to create better marketing plans and visions on how to promote the project and, 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 and a kind of a focus. So we're looking for these USBs. Not any USBs, but the USBs that we would understand and feel, meaning mostly they come from beautiful narrative on, or great world creation, but also accompanied by good gameplay because we, we are fans of great gameplay. Probably gameplay itself often often wouldn't be uh, often wouldn't be enough for us to maybe publish or create a game because we need that extra essence, this extra matter, and an interesting theme. But but we enjoy good gameplay, so that's another element that we take into consideration. Uh, and these are like the and, and and whether the game is beautiful visually and obviously this is this is also important. It has to be interesting. It has to stand out uh, of the crowd in that area as well. And the world beautiful, you know, has a lot of different meanings for different groups of people and and, and issues. But we want to understand if if it has a chance to be interesting for the particular crowd that we think will be interested in that game in the first place. And then there are all those market-related questions like, okay, who is this game for? Um, what kind of a genre is this? Because we don't really limit ourselves to different to segments and genres. I know internally we have these survival um, games that we love, but when it comes to publishing, we don't have this structure where we're divided and dedicated into a few different segments. For instance, I don't know, RPG games mm. and and point and click games and, and and all we do are games from those segments. Often genre is less important for us than the, the the theme itself. So if a game is about something cool and meaningful and interesting for us, well the genre is secondary. I mean it's important to try to evaluate whether the game might get traction with enough players because there are genres that are becoming less and less popular and they're extremely hard to sell. Uh, so we tend to avoid those a bit, but uh, that, that's about it. So once we have the USPs, once we think that uh, that the team can deliver the game, we, we, we understand their vision, we believe that they know what they're doing, and, and we can see that they're a bunch of amazing specialists and, and we can help them out in whatever way they need. And once we kind of understand who the target audience is, we try to um well compare how other titles from these similar segments areas uh, perform and based on that we do some bit of magic with different scenarios of how things can evolve then there's the execution we're working very very hard to well meet the the very positive estimations <laughs> sales estimations and hopefully hopefully deliver a hit it probably won't work always but until now we're very happy with our results. It's not as structured as you would think, but maybe because, uh, well, there, there are definitely a lot of smart people thinking about it. So sometimes just things happen in their heads, and but the results are amazing. And when you say it's also a lot of gut feeling, I don't think that's necessarily bad, right? Because I feel like the intuitive capabilities of people are really much stronger than we think and if you are wrapped into this world of games and you play games and you you look at the marketplace you you just have a good intuitive understanding as well i think about these these topics i hope and i believe that um, we're trying to support obviously um these these feelings uh, by research whatever can be measured we're trying to do it uh we have different kinds of metrics we're observing the market from a more numbers focused perspective as well but um, i think because of the fact that we're really working only on games that we think we understand um, i think we can still allow ourselves to follow our yeah our feelings and and these kind of soft expectations with just a sprinkle of um proofs my perception of like what's currently working a lot on on the pc market are these games that are very long that uh stretch like where people can spend hundreds of hours and sure. if you have like a, a strong world building with a lot of um 
lore in the background and a lot of background information that also helps with the with selling games basically right uh, would you agree with that or what's your stance of maybe in terms of 11 bit comparing shorter narrative experiences versus these kind of like super long games mm -hmm. which cover <laughs> take a lot of time from your like uh, gaming time personally i'm a fan of many of these extremely long games i'm a big fan of the um, paradox strategies for instance um uh, crusader kings um, hearts of iron europa universalis uh, but also civilization series like i like these games they just they, they create those massive worlds but also gameplay mechanisms that you can spend your almost entire life in uh, and they'll always be somehow fun um When it comes to the general world building and those themes, I, yes, I think creating these oh, worlds slash IPs, to be honest, um, uh, is uh, is valuable business-wise because I think players, they choose their favorite worlds and they are eager to spend more and more time in those They just feel comfortable there. I think maybe they, they understand the rules. They maybe with every aspect of the world they learn about they feel that they're a bigger part of it look at what was created by warcraft and and world of warcraft right like people really understand these themes and worlds and connect the dots and then just feel partially at home um and we have a lot of examples of of those kind of a bigger bigger worlds that are being created i mean right now we're partially doing this with with frostpunk right we just announced Frostpunk 2, it's a it's a well continuation of the same world. It's 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 kind of persistent. It's kind of uh, it's built on the same basis. Um, in parallel to that, we're creating this huge kind of a encyclopedia of the world uh, to really understand it, to really have all the rules set, to be able to uh, be sure that the well the the the, the sequel that we're creating is um, built on with respecting whatever was whatever was invented and created during uh during frostpunk one so yes while i value these massive worlds that are so fascinating that are people that people are are um really willing to spend hours upon hours inside of them at the same time i value a lot these crazy smaller finished experiences that just give you five, six, 10, 15 hours of some of a very emotional and, and a weird ride and then just end there and you'll never be able to really repeat that experience because I think both of these kinds of games have, a, well, they use different tools to affect the players. Just like, just like maybe that can be also compared to... Um, to uh the tv series right like if a tv series is extremely long there becomes this risk of watering down the theme the risk yeah. that things will either become less vibrant over time or more crazy because in order to keep up the tempo and keep up the pressure you got to be coming up with you know a, almost like a stronger drug every other episode so things become a bit weird sometimes a bit too yeah. Uh, too Absolutely. far from where it started um, and maybe that's also something that can be happening in games while these short experiences they they just they just sometimes punch you in the face and and leave you there on the concrete laying on the concrete and and that's it like you you have the rest of your life to think about them but they won't take too much time to explain themselves and and i value that i like these i like these extremely powerful kind of short experiences that have a closure Yeah, absolutely. I I love those as a as a player. Um, like the first, the Portal One is one of my favorite games ever because it is so short and it doesn't overstay its welcome, like you say. For myself as a game developer, I'm I'm kind of hesitant to think in those directions of short narrative games because I I feel the 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 surface area of those games is kind of short. So if somebody plays a game for four hours and then finishes it. Mm -hmm the time they have to do word of mouth telling other people about it if it just takes up like a day in their life or something it's, it's kind of like there's not a lot of opportunity in the worst case i mean if, you, if it's excellently executed it, it can still work but yeah i'm always a bit hesitant to approach those 
themes for myself, I feel like it's almost a safer bet to to do these, uh, as in our case, more procedural roguelike-ish games that people can come back to over time and that you can do um, updates uh, over time and so on. I I understand that approach and I see value uh, in that. And, and there's also a, like a variety of monetization mechanisms that you can use in games that can be repeated and replayed over and over again. Again, we mentioned some uh, companies making amazing, amazing um, open-ended strategy games. They're pretty impressive. Hmm. And um, I'm sure they're being made because people actually buy them. And I'm not surprised because I, I buy that stuff myself as well from time to time because I just want to have a bit of refreshment to my favorite kind of experience, right? And check out something a little bit fresh, but not too fresh. So I won't buy a new game. I'll just buy a small twist to what I already know. It makes sense. It absolutely makes sense from the business point of view. But I don't think this is, well, the only future that we have. I still sincerely believe that people from time to time will also want to experience those um, more intense, shorter, uh, shorter games, just because they have a limited amount of time, or because they want to be really kicked in the face, like you know, really feel something, and that I think can only be uh, only happen in those shorter experiences that are extremely intense, that just play with your with your with your mind and 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 form a very intense kind of experience which can't be expanded to 20 50 i don't know um 100 hours sometimes some games actually one of the, maybe the best games can deliver trills and keep them for really crazy amount of hours but those i think are very either very exp- well both probably very expensive and very difficult to make and sometimes also um uh, me as a player it's easier for me I'm not sure if I'm contradicting myself, but it's easier for me to recommend a shorter game uh, that people can get in and out of like in, in two hours because I know it's not pitching a game where I say like one person one, once uh, told me about a game and then like it was a multiplayer game. It was like the first 300 matches when you don't have good equipment are kind of boring, but then it gets really good. And I, 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 I don't have time. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I cannot play like 300 hours just to get to the good part. Like uh, it's much easier for me. Uh, more attractive to pick up a quick game. Exactly. I think this is also one of the reasons why indie games are popular a bit because there many of them are quite easy to pick up and then just you, you get your fun, 30, 40, 50 minutes of fun and then just you, you, you leave it until tomorrow or whatever next week. And it's much easier. Um, whereas with those bigger games, sometimes AA titles, like you really, you know, before the intro starts and boo and, and then the intro and then the tutorial and the whole world building aspect that takes time so that they make sure that you understand what's going on. Like it's so tiring that you already fall asleep. It like requires a form of kind of investment from the player uh, to jump in. Not everyone and not always wants to invest that kind of time for learning. Um, I mentioned 4X strategy games, which I like, or grand strategy games. I like them in general, but... Maybe one of the reasons why I stick with the usual crowd is the fact that I hate tutorials. Mm. Um, And uh, with those games, without really tutorials and learning or sometimes reading extra details on variety of different Viki pages about those games, you you can't really fully understand what's going on because they're so complex. So, So sometimes it's simply like requires to spend, well, yeah, hours learning, learning before you're able to relax, which can be pretty <laughs> crazy. But then sometimes you invest that time and, and the experience becomes fascinating. But it, I don't want to be doing that. Not always I have this will to invest that kind of time into learning something new. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so talking about these t- different type of genres, is there a emerging genre recently that you find interesting? Like and con- are considering for for eleven bit uh, for an eleven bit published game? Um, well, we always considered the meaningful gaming to be a genre in itself. I know it's not a genre in a classical form where, where people usually mean 
categorizing the games, uh, looking through their mechanics. It's more of a subject-oriented labeling, but uh, but that's still the answer. I think we we're observing, we see, uh, we were part of the rising, the, the, the meaningful or the mature gaming trend. And it became already popular. There's much more uh, games that are pretty serious. And we think we, there's already an audience looking for games of that type. Uh, so this is still definitely something that's mostly fascinating for us. Whatever mechanics it has, it doesn't matter as much for us, to us. Um, because, well, yeah, because because it's mostly about the, the, the message and now not how you click. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like for my games company, Machine Mensch, it's, it's a kind of a similar approach in that we don't care really about the genre that we're doing. We care more about the feeling and the theme. And our games usually start from that in a reversed fashion where we think more about where is this game set and then from there the, the genre and everything else evolves. And it sounds like kind of that's how you're looking. Yeah, I, I think that's a natural way for those games that are about a certain kind of experience um, because well first there's usually that theme that comes to your mind and this fantasy of being someone or somewhere and you start building that fantasy in that world in your head and then a natural question usually pops out and, and it's like okay so how do you play that like what mechanics can support that kind of a fantasy in the best way, like what's going to feel pretty natural in that particular situation for the player, what's going to support this theme. And I think this is how the best games are being created, narrative games about themes. Because I think if you work this way, there's a bigger probability that you end up with a mechanics and a system that truly supports, well, yeah, the, your message and the fantasy. And it's not just an artificial interaction that you have to be doing for some reason in order to push the storyline forward, right? And, and to be presented with the chunks of storyline, cutscenes, whatever. Hmm. Um, I, I, we value these, this, we value this synergy and this natural interaction between mechanics and theme and storyline. And um, that's always getting extra points. <laughs> Uh, those kinds of pitches, they always get extra points when we when we evaluate them. The same goes for internal projects. Like we really, we think that this world of mine had a mechanics that well supported the theme really well um, because it was ultimately a game about survival and it was a survival genre. And then there's Frostpunk, which is also a game about survival, but from a different perspective, it's a city survival. So it was pretty natural to have those city building and planning elements because you're having grants like looking at the grand scale of things and we like that connection uh, but ultimately it could probably be everything the same with this war of mine the the females first and then the mechanics showed up so you briefly mentioned pitching so let's talk about that how do you do scouting or how do pitches arrive at your desk like is it usually developers reaching out to you or are you looking out like on on twitter or certain channels uh, for games both actually um we're not <laughs> we're not the kings of the world yet so uh, obviously not everyone knows that we're publishing games not everyone knows that we exist which is natural which means that we also have to be proactive uh so we do have well uh, hi chris uh, chris is our scout uh an amazing guy um working very hard to stay on top of things and exactly analyze social media web pages youtube but also being all around the world and different kinds of um gaming um events to talk to the developers to um, actively search for good pitches to be open into people pitching games to him and that's one of the If, if not the best source of games uh, for us. And then there's an, an, uh, another very natural thing is um, a pitching form or on our webpage. And then there's, well, there are a variety of different emails that you can be sending us. And that's how we learn about games. So uh, what's kind of the scope of games? Uh, this, 
the size of the team and and the game that you're looking to fund are you are you considering everything or is there like a certain budget range or yeah scope that you're aiming for uh -huh. yeah yeah naturally um we have our limitations from i would say both sides meaning our budget isn't infinite uh, we're definitely not an aaa publisher so we probably can't afford a project which is I don't know, 20 million euros. 10 would be already quite a lot. Quite a lot. We, I think we could. that's something that we could consider, but let's call that the, 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 the top, um, top limit for now, maybe, at least for the, uh, for the games that we're publishing. Or maybe, yeah, that's, that's the area where things become really serious. But we're open to, to talking about them. And then looking from the bottom, I guess there's this um, certain kind of mass that we think we need to be able to succeed in the market, to be able to effectively promote the game, because we need a certain kind of marketing budget, for instance, to do anything that's, that's really serious, like trailers, but also invest into social marketing and um, come up with all the crazy ideas that we usually come up with. And this budget usually has to be in some, well, um, logical relation to the development budget because it's it's not wise to apply a big marketing budget to an extremely small game because probably it will be an overkill and it won't be recuperated. On the other hand, we're while we're very effective and we're not, um, like I said, AA publisher spending a lot of cash on billboards, there's also, uh, well, we, we can't work with having no marketing budget which naturally applies some form of a lower lower limit probably it's less and less probable for us to be to be publishing games made by a single dev probably uh, unless it's an extremely um, special game then we can consider it maybe not not only from the market 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 um, reasons but I think it's a tough sell nowadays I, I have a feeling that every year, the expected size and quality of indie games is rising, actually. It's mm. moving us or, or pushing us strongly closer and closer to the AA segment, maybe. There's the rise of triple I trend. So there's this certain kind of execution and scope and game length and complexity that players expect. Sure, there are these... Um, examples of smaller and bigger games that are more or less successful, but they pretty much confirm like the rules. So I think there's our minimum size is a team of at least a few people, maybe five, six, eight, depending on the skill and the genre of the game. And well, the bad budget is basically calculated. Uh, I think headcount is a much better is a much better metrics for that because mm -hmm. well that. You know, a million euros utilized in Poland and then a million euros utilized in U.S. or Canada, that, that's a whole different story. So, uh, but headcount still matters. Like headcount still is kind of an objective measurement. So, yes, a, a few people, probably closer to eight as a minimum. Um, it's not that if we see in your pitch that you're only a team of five it will be automatically automatically rejected. Of course not. It's a very soft kind of a, a thing. But based on the, the the past experiences, I have a feeling that games made by teams of that size, at least, were definitely more often moving forward in the in the negotiations phase or or in our evaluation process. And then that goes up. We work with currently with a team. One of the teams has almost 40 people on board, which is much bigger. Mm. Um, and it's it's also a cool experience, and we value that. So we're some, somewhere in that range of 5, 10, and then all the way to maybe 50, 60, depending on the geographical localization, because that would um, be transferred to um, to cost directly. I don't, I don't think we could easily handle a 50... 50 people team working for four years in Canada, maybe, or Great Britain. Not easily, but maybe there's a way to do that. So, <laughs> sure, we're yeah. open at least to discussing this. All right. Uh, you probably see a 
a lot of pitches on your table. Maybe let's get a bit juicy and um, let me ask you, what are things that you usually see done wrongly in a pitch? Like what are, I wouldn't say like red flags, but what do you most often feel is lacking in pitches that you get from people? Well, that's going to be very uh, selfish and, 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 and publisher and business oriented. I would say um, good prototypes accompanying the pitches because that really makes our life easier. Obviously, prototypes are hard to, to create, especially if you don't have your own financing, if you don't have your team fully set up, right? So it's much easier and it's much more comfortable for us to to talk with developers about the games that are somehow explained through something interactive because it is an interactive medium and it's very, some concepts are a very tough sell on paper. So um, we encourage everyone who has a possibility of actually creating a part of the experience, some part of the experience that hopefully will transfer some, at least a small part of that magic that's supposed to be visible in the final product to, to, to send these prototypes because they're very valuable to us. But again, I understand why we're not getting even more of those prototypes because for some games, they're extremely hard to create. And for some teams, they're not really needed because that's another side of the coin. Like if you're a very well-established, experienced team, you have um, well great projects in your portfolio, sometimes it's enough to just have a nice, crazy idea on paper for, for a publisher to well, support you or for an investor, if you're looking for one, to actually be able to share their cash with you. So that was more of a general com comment regarding that. It's not really a like a problem or a quality quality issue, but that's that's my personal take on what makes my life easier uh, when it comes to pitches. But if I was to say what's a general problem that I see with some of the pitches is maybe the fact that many of those games are not really unique. Like there's, there's so many people willing to work in games and working on games already. And there are really weeks where we can be receiving three pitches of almost the same game. And it's, it, it's really amazing. I mean, I think, especially for an indie developer, having, creating something unique, well thought of, something that you feel is special, maybe something that only you can create, um, I think it's very valuable and it's very needed because there are so many other people working on games uh, currently, and some of them will be working probably on a game that's similar to yours. The more simple the idea, the more copycat of it, uh, it is, the bigger probability there are other teams doing exactly that and maybe even better than you. So I think that's the, the, the number two would be the, or the biggest, biggest problem is the novelty element. Hmm. The fact that not everything is, is novel enough. And if it's not, what is the reason of making it? Sometimes it feels like the only reason to make that game is the fact that the developer wants to make it, which is cool. I understand that because often there are types of games I would like to work on um, on my own as well. And sometimes they're just very similar to other concepts because it would be a, it would be pleasant to me. But from a business perspective, it might not make sense. Yeah, that's interesting because you could also argue that taking a formula that's, that's working kind of like Slate Aspire or something, you see now a lot of um, trading card games uh, popping up. Is also something that is kind of less risky than establishing a new genre, right? Or a new, new mechanic. Yeah, but what I meant is um, I think there are two different kinds of, well, creativity or what I mean by creativity. There's this one that can absolutely create something totally brand new, a brand new world, a brand new mechanics, a brand new approach to um, the general concept or you can be creating a new thing within the boundaries of a segment or a genre like you mentioned card games for instance or i don't know an fps shooter while understanding the segment enough to say that i will change 
only this particular rule or only this particular particular element and it will be a big enough of a change to affect how this product is being perceived to affect well the scores and uh, the whole experience right I'll, I'll be redefining the wheel a little bit and I'll end up making a game that's okay from the very particular segment and maybe at first sight it looks similar to all the other titles but it's not. It has this special thing inside that makes it unique. And, uh, and I think that's also okay. That's, that's another type of approach. But you need then, still, you need to understand what that novelty is. And, and what we're getting in the pitches quite often is like, okay, I'll be making this another FPS shooter, right? Set in a modern theme. And there's nothing really special about it besides the fact that okay the models are a little bit different because someone else made them but they're still mm. uh, like the locations are your average locations where war happens and then and, and the weapons are your average weapons and it looks like all the other systems are similar to what's out there on the market and then well, well, you ask yourself and then developers what's what's the catch and there's really no good answer then I think it's pretty difficult to sell a game like this and, and difficult to succeed because because if you're not making anything better and, and, and to make things better, usually you, you need to make something well different. And this, this means it's some form of a creative and fresh approach. If you're not doing anything different, then why would people pick up your project? I think because they're, they can stick to the games that they already own and have and that are established on the market already and then just keep on playing them. Hmm. When you talk about USPs, it's, it's hard to um, communicate those. Uh, yeah. You might have a USP or a hook, but if it's kind of hidden in all this information of like, oh, we have 30 weapons and like 50 levels and so on, then and somewhere in there, there's an interesting USP. It's, it can be easy to oversee. And I think that's like a big skill in pitching to like, understand what what those key points are that you should focus on like also in the pitching process i think there's also i think um a type of games that are not publishable i mean that probably will never or always have problems securing uh, a publisher's attention or an investment because they seem to lack these USPs. They seem extremely complex to explain, and they're so crazy that only the, the developer really understands them. And, and everyone else, and they're very hard to prototype because there are games like this. So as a developer, all you can say is that this is my approach to things. It's going to work. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be amazing. I just know what I'm doing, and, but it's too hard to explain. Um, hearing a message like this as a publisher, well, it, it sounds extremely risky. Not every publisher, or I think most of the publishers, would be avoiding projects like this. While sometimes these developers, they just keep on pushing. They just keep on working on their crazy, hard-to-explain idea, and they end up redefining the industry. <laughs> so, uh, um, but... Sometimes, sometimes we do these experiments, like with just tracking games that have been launched on Steam or any other platform, and we're like, "Oh, this is an amazing game," but we would probably never, never, ever decide to publish it on an early stage because, like, fuck, like how how can you? That that seemed like a crazy idea, but it worked out at the end. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's definitely a category of of games like that. Um, so as a developer. Well, I think there are things that you can learn from a publisher or an investor, definitely, I hope. And, and I strongly believe there are. But for some types of games, I guess <laughs> you need a lot of passion and, and, uh, and a will to move forward, despite the fact that the world does not understand your, your project. Often you will fail and the failure is going to be fully on you because there's usually no one else investing in it. But then if you succeed, it's... It's going to be a massive hit. Mm. And uh, all the revenue goes to you then. <laughs> when we move beyond pitching and your 
actually have signed the project and you are working with the with the team how closely are you involved with the development of the project like do you get to the point where you even give like gameplay feedback and or and like creative direction or input or are you pretty much hands off it depends on the team um it depends on the team and their needs we definitely do not lead the projects creatively uh, we avoid that but we like discussing creative stuff if there's space for that um, because as i said we only try to work on projects that we think we understand so while well okay some of us are we we are developers in many ways and and some of us have pure development experience we're not in those projects to to um push our vision but we're to comment we're to deliver expertise uh market research but also just pure gamers feedback so um we're usually very close either for understanding the progress and and then just you know being this kind of a sparing partner for developers to talk about ideas verify them generate them focus test those ideas on us sometimes we transfer our or, or share our own experiences with the developers to hopefully speed up the process sometimes we learn something uh from one developer and then just we we, we like suggest applying it in another project because maybe it's also going to be effective but that's about it I, i i we're definitely not the fire and forget kind of a publisher so it's not that we're signing a deal and then just we're, we're back when we're supposed to be marketing the game um, it, it, it usually doesn't work this way we try to be i mean we are always friends and and and, and we try to maintain that relationship uh, and talk and really understand well the way the game evolves how it evolves and in what areas because it also makes things easier um, if you're in constant communication um, and good relationship then things such as milestones are not a problem because usually like you're on top of things you know exactly what's going on at any given moment so then there's this milestone and payment and you're just like okay hey i know where we are there's no need for a very sophisticated evaluation process that takes half a year and checking all the assets like you you have the answer you know if, if mm. we're on time if not and, and 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 what are the risks you've you've always knew you, you talked about them once they appeared so i think it makes things much easier and um okay i'm now talking about the last step so we talked about pitching and then the production marketing Is there a certain are there certain channels that you feel strongly about marketing-wise at at 11 bit that you say like oh those are like our core channels and ways of for reaching out to players and letting them know about the game? I think this constantly changes. Uh, obviously, uh, you can't underestimate the value of influencers and YouTubers, but social media is very important right now and all the social marketing aspects. There's definitely transferring players from well one game to another so proposing great games to our community and making games that we think that our community will that will not only expand our community but that our community that we already have will enjoy and we'll be satisfied with this is this is also very important to us but i think we're also extremely skillful when it comes to a variety of business arrangements and and managing the product on different platforms um uh, managing discounts uh, different kinds of promos and initiatives that sometimes start as a crazy idea but then uh we're able to uh, to actually finalize them uh thanks to our relationships with platforms or, or just just um tools that we already have but no one ever used them in that way i think we our business is well extremely skillful as well so on one hand side i think we're really good in in um delivering messages through social media through different media outlets through the channels we use to communicate with our community but then we're also really good in securing visibility on platforms and and crafting these crazy deals that increase Well, yeah, the probability that people will learn that the game exists and then just even even um, 
hopefully buy it, which often is the case as uh, our successes prove, I hope. If uh, like a small indie is listening and they don't have a lot of time for community management and like social media management, like what would be the one social media channel that you would say they need to be on? Oh, that's, um, I'm not sure if our community manager or our um, PRM marketing uh, departments would confirm that. For me, that would still probably be Facebook. But, you know, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, you have very good um, advertising tools, uh, for sure, on, on Facebook. And, yeah, uh, it feels it feels a bit like a dinosaur kind of a system with all the TikToks and then Instagrams and, and everything that happens around, taking taking over parts of the crowd. And then there's obviously Twitter. But I I. I feel it's still this kind of an industry standard yeah interesting so final question about community building i feel your games do share a certain uh, similarity as you as you uh, explained before how do you try to bring over people from one game to another or to make sure that kind of they they become part of your 11-bit community and mm -hmm. uh then jump onto the different games? Well, there are cross promos. So there is always a possibility of trying to promote your title within the other title, although not every platform supports that and it's not possible everywhere. Besides that, there are different types of bundles and sales. So these initiatives on platforms that you can use to package your games into one present, basically, and then increase the probability of people actually buying few of them and then hopefully playing all of them. So that's another tool. You have different ways of communicating directly with the players who own your project already through some of the platform tools or maybe through the emails and um, newsletters that you already have and have built over, over time to inform these people that there's a new product from your in your portfolio and that maybe they would be interested in it. And I think because of the fact that, as you said, many titles in our portfolio share a similar vibe, there's this kind of an essence that connects them. Maybe not all of them, but most of them definitely, and we, we, we value that. It increases the probability that people who enjoyed one of our titles will enjoy the other one as well, because partially they'll be getting a bit of that same value that they had in the previous game maybe in a different for sure in a different form but there's something similar about something a similar flavor that if they liked once hopefully they, they'll, they'll like it here again so maybe there's it's also about this kind of a trust we're trying to build between us and our audience trust that we want to be delivering bad games trust that if there's something being published or created by 11-bit studios that it's responsible, that it's well thought of, that it's as good as possible. And we really tried hard, we and the developers, to create something special. I think this this is this might be important actually for the players. And and having this trust is very um well, it's cool, it's very important for us. Um, it's exceptional. But it may be also, I'm sure it also is a way to um, to be able to, yeah, better promote games and, and, and sell more of them because because people are just simply willing to buy them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel that the, the, the brand quality is a huge aspect. And also, if you manage to have like a, a brand idea of, of the types of games you're publishing, then the likelihood that somebody just naturally likes a different game from a portfolio is much higher, right? If they are kind of yeah, the same we, genre. Or exactly. We believe that because we like <laughs> those other games as well because we've selected them. So maybe people who are similar to us or different but like similar games, maybe, maybe they'll have the exact same thought process. That's what we believe and that's what it looks like it works. Okay, excellent. All right, that's that's all the questions I have for today. Thank you so much for answering all, all my questions and like talking Thank about you. these subjects and for coming onto the podcast. It was a pleasure.
All right, then. Uh, goodbye. Great. Thank you. Thank you. See you around. And that concludes the interview with Marek. For feedback about this episode or guest recommendations, please send an email to podcast at codex.io. You may have noticed a significant delay between episode two and one. The original idea was to record this podcast from our indie game collective office Saftladen in Berlin. Unfortunately, COVID happened and threw everything off the track. We've been all in home office since then. We're picking up the podcast again though, and you can expect more frequent episodes from now on. If you're looking to improve your work process, please check out Codex, our playful project management tool for game developers made by game developers. You can find it at Codex.io. It's free to trial. If you sign up via Codex.io slash We Love Podcasts, you get extra credits. Thank you so much and until next time.